Queering Museums is introducing new narratives. Telling un- or undertold stories. Changing our relationship with something. Queering means questioning the things we do and why we do them. Breaking down binaries of all kinds. Queering Museums means removing the concept of default anything. Inclusion is never the end. It is just a stepping stone. Queering Museums is changing how we imagine object history. Challenges to the status quo. Queers inclusivity and diversity of audience. Making museums more welcoming. Queering Museums is a long-term commitment and responsibility to counter dominant narratives. Queer is community. Queer is love. Welcome to Queering Museums, a gender and sexuality inclusion podcast. My name is Tanya. I'm Desiree. So we're so excited to have Amelia Smith to join us um, on this episode. Amelia is a transgender lesbian museum professional. Her work seeks to bridge the gap between transgender studies and queer museology. Amelia holds a Master of Museum Studies from the University of Toronto and is the creator of Not Your Average Sistery, a home for exploring the various ways that museums can be viewed through a transgender lens. Welcome, Amelia. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We are so glad that you're here. Before we begin, did you want to introduce yourself and how you're doing in this moment and maybe where you're located? So, like you said, I'm Amelia Smith. I explore the ways that trans studies and museum studies can overlap and what the two can learn from each other. This began during my master's. I was just very interested in what had been written about trans museums and trans exhibitions, and I really wasn't able to find anything. So I decided to write it myself. I am currently located in Toronto. And I don't know, I'm doing all right. Feels like another day in the pandemic, I guess. Mm -hmm. I feel that. <laughs> yeah, and that's such an important gap that you're filling. So thank you for all of the work that you're doing. It's so important. So I guess we were uh, curious to start off. You were recently hired by the Transgender Archives to design a digital exhibition. And we're wondering if you would like to introduce that project. Certainly. So I was hired by the Trans Archives at the University of Victoria back in, I believe it was September that they offered me it and I started. The project was building upon a collection of oral histories that had been conducted with trans elders around 20 or so interviews. And these folks had been involved in activism and things of that nature for decades, some of them. This project was really to bring them together. And then I was brought on to create an exhibition that could highlight the stories, could launch at the same time as the oral histories were launched. And Early on in that, I went through all of them, which was a very time-consuming process, but it was very insightful. Early on in going through them, I hit on the theme of information 
It felt very important as a way of communicating, getting information out there and spreading it. It felt very central and I roughly knew what was available at the trans archives so I could pull upon that thread as needed. And then I was able to spend a couple months in Victoria at the university, just diving into the collection. Uh, the trans archives is the largest collection of trans materials in the world. And it's got a very robust, very extensive collection. It was incredibly rewarding to actually get my hands on things to explore it and just sort of piece together a story out of that around this idea of information of sharing and connecting and communicating because that really ran through a lot of these oral histories and it could be felt in a lot of the publications that were made. One of the highlights was there was an episode of the Phil Donahue show from January, 1980 with crossdresser Ariadne Kane. And this was mentioned in one of the interviews. It had a paper trail, but for all intents and purposes, it was lost media. There was no references to it online, aside from a couple of mentions on the digital transgender archives, much less any footage, but there were copies in the collection. Unfortunately. It wasn't on a very prominent material or format. It was Umatic, which I had never heard of before. We ended up getting that shipped out to Toronto to be digitized. Basically the only way to actually get a hold of it. And we got it back and it's incredible just seeing this material that likely has not been seen in over 40 years and things like that is so rewarding finding these things and being able to piece them together to tell a cohesive story, especially from a group that is so often ignored in the archives, so often forgotten about, if not intentionally erased to be able to bring some of that to life. And to revive it was an absolutely rewarding experience. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, so much of the time with marginalized communities, there's this idea that the information isn't out there. And yeah, as you're saying, things get intentionally erased and lost. And yet there are these glimmers of material. I just, I think it's a bit of a pushback to that idea that these stories are totally lost. Yeah, it's it sounds amazing. And such a cool journey of discovering all of that and bringing it out as well. I was curious if you could share with, with us what Umatic is, because I also don't know what that was. Yeah, that's so Umatic is a format that was popular in, I guess, film and television as like an industry standard. It was a big clunky tape that completely enclosed similar to a, like a VHS or a Betamax, but a lot bigger, maybe about half the width 
of a regular keyboard, Ariadne would have gotten one as a participant on the show. And it's very clear from the collection at the university that she collected all of her TV appearances. There's one on film from, I think, 1976 with Virginia Prince, which is, that one's something to watch. I have no idea what's, what it looks like, but Virginia Prince is another exhibition focuses on her for a bit because the Trans Archives has a lot of her things as well. But yeah, Neumatic was really not so much of a commercial product, but far more industry-wide. Well, thanks for sharing that and helping us visualize it. Yeah, I've never heard of that word at all. <laughs> I hadn't either. It was completely new to me. I was digging around for this. I was searching all over the internet and I didn't even have the date. I didn't even know when the show aired. I knew it aired in 1980, but didn't even have like January. So like to have it come to an end and be like, I have it in my hand, but there's no way to watch it was painful. Absolutely. So talking about digital exhibitions, I was reading through your blog and I noticed your, your post about digital exhibition design. And yeah, I really loved the conversation you bring up around digital exhibitions being designed in the same way that brick and mortar ones are or typically have historically been designed. And yeah, this pressure that one can feel in physical spaces to read quickly because you're holding up the line and just that you say that those pressures shape the text hierarchies. And so, yeah, I really noted that because I think, too, that it speaks to issues of access. I just wondered if you might want to expand on this conversation a little bit with how you approach the design of the digital exhibition. So that conversation was with one of the professors of the Masters of Museum Studies program, John Summers. And when I was hired on for this exhibition, I wanted to explore some ways of doing digital exhibits. I had previously released one on trans surgeries. It's currently up on my website. And when that one shifted to digital, I was thinking about and overthinking really about the medium as it presents itself. I found that a lot of the digital exhibits that I was coming across are just 3D recreations of whatever the museum exhibit was. It would be just taking exactly what you saw, maybe multiple photographs in like a 3D space and just put together so that you can walk through it. To me, that felt insufficient because there were all of these pressures, like you mentioned, of wanting to keep going. And these things have influenced how we have worked on, how we have written text, because it's a common understanding that people don't read at museums. You only have so much space to actually write, which is often smaller than you might think if you're not familiar. And so I really wanted to explore that with that conversation with John Summers. He had a different perspective, which I found very fascinating, that the other side of digital exhibits, they are completely unrecognizable from uh, blog posts. They are essentially a scroll, read, next page, scroll, read, next page. 
And that to him was not taking advantage of the full medium. So we both kind of had this idea that there's more that could be done here that we just were not being seen done. So that conversation was really fascinating in that way. For this exhibition with the Trans Archives, the issue at hand, one of the issues was that the program that the University of Victoria uses does lean into that more blog post style exhibit design. And so I had to, while working within these constraints, really try to find a way to make it feel more like an exhibition. And one of the ways that I did that, and that I hope really comes through when the exhibition launches, is I developed a way of navigating it differently. So instead of there being just, okay, here's the next page, and then here's the next page, and then here's the next page, I want it to be more open-ended. Okay, you want to follow Ariadne Kane. Well, okay, here is her work with Fantasia Fair, or here is her work on the Phil Donahue show. So you could go and skip whole sections if you wanted to, because that was available. It freed it up for the visitor to do as they felt. I'm really hopeful that that works out and that it makes it more effective. It's still, both Summers and I are trying to think through digital exhibits further, and there's a lot to come, but working within these limitations has also been enlightening. And it's offered room to grow, room to experiment. And that's always important, because I think the medium of digital exhibits is still fairly new. And so where things go is still to be seen. Yeah, and in a way, like having to work within those constraints sometimes can, can birth creativity, you know? Although nice to be able to start from a blank slate and not have to have those constraints, I'm sure. And I would imagine too that that's um, setup would be really helpful for like neurodivergent folks and just really being able to come to the exhibition and getting out of it what they kind of need in the moment. Mm -hmm. or, yeah. Yeah. Um, it sounds like a tailored experience to each visitor. Trying to at least. Recognizing how people will navigate it is always important. And that's both in physically, how does it look on a phone versus a computer? On another part of the digital, though, one of the things that I decided on very early was around social media. In preparation for the position while I was still in Toronto before moving out, I was reading Nina Simon's The Participatory Museum. And I was trying to think of how it could engage audiences to be involved in some way. And what I really came to was this idea of basically getting the trans community involved. This exhibition is all about going from the small, the individual to a community and growing at each step. And one of the questions that was asked in the oral histories was, when did you first feel like you weren't alone? which is a great question. And so I thought to use that and to ask trans people, to ask people on social media, because it's not so good to just have uh, a part on the exhibition and to say, okay, put your text in here and it'll go up. And it's sort of a separate thing. I always wanted it to be part of the exhibition itself and integrated from the very beginning. And this makes a good, ending to the exhibition asking, well, what are your stories? 
and putting them alongside the elders who were interviewed to say, when did you first feel that? And then you can feel a connection. It can also serve as a part of promotional materials. And that's really guided a lot of things that I've tried to work with it, especially around the name, which has not yet been chosen, but hoping to have one that can very easily, very effectively be shared as a hashtag and then be put up onto the exhibition itself. That's beautiful. You made me tear up a little bit. <laughs> I just think that's such a beautiful way to engage people. Yeah. Love that too. So I guess that leads us to our next question about engagement. And that's a beautiful example of engaging with to us LGBTQIA plus communities and artists. But we are wondering what sort of advice you might have for other museums or galleries or institutions wanting to better engage um, with communities and artists and curators? I really think that engaging with the communities needs to be done authentically, for one, and recognizing where the communities are with where they're coming from. It's not so good to just think of, okay, we're going to go in and we're going to do all of these things for them, and they'll be so grateful that they'll want to put it on exhibition. It should be the natural result of uh, collaboration. And to build up those connections, it's not so good to just have that exhibition, have something go on, and then just, great, we're done. That's not efficient. That's not effective. I think that one of the best examples is the Royal Ontario Museum, a number of years ago, I believe 2017, they did an exhibition on Edo-era Japan that had some trans similarities to it. And in, in doing that, they changed a lot within the museum, including having a very good gender-neutral washroom, multi-stalls, just completely not gendered. They actually went and changed things. So I think that just, it needs to be recognized that exhibitions, especially temporary exhibitions, is not just enough. And also recognizing that just because something is queer does not mean that it fits everything within the LGBTQ. If you have something that's really just about gay men, that is not satisfying the whole community. And so to actually be diverse in that, in the content put on, is of the utmost importance. Yeah, thank you for all those points. All the intersecting impressions and accompanying with action and all that relationship building. Those are all some really, really key points. In one of your recent blog posts too, you talked about sort of this framing of audience engagement and thinking about who we're curating our content for and the difference between are we curating content for um, cisgender outsiders compared to when we're uh, recognizing that the audience is for trans people. So I was wondering if you could talk about that and how might this affect the approach of a museum or an institution wanting to engage with LGBT communities and what advice you'd have navigating engagement with audience? Yeah. So there was an exhibition that I saw. It was being displayed at my university 
during my first year of my master's. It was on trans pornographies. It was just a very small exhibition, one vitrine, one display case, and a wall. And I'm not against the idea of an exhibition on trans pornography. It is a fascinating subject to talk about. There are so many ways to attack it. There are so many ways to discuss the ways that trans pornography has impacted trans people's lives. This exhibition felt like it was just saying, hey, look, trans pornography exists. It was really, really disappointing. And the more that I looked at it, the more that I thought about it, the more annoyed I got. Because here is this thing that had impacted my life in some way. And it was not interested in giving a voice to someone like me. It was not interested in giving a voice to the trans sex workers that were being displayed. It tried to do too many things, but its consideration for a trans audience was basically, will they get offended? And that's not really enough. When doing anything regarding a trans audience, you should really consider what they're supposed to get out of it because trans people are so rarely visible in museum spaces. You really need to read between the lines or know how things are coded to really get that. And even then, it's minimal. That exhibition really imprinted on me. And it's made me think a lot on how do we make sure that trans people can speak for themselves, that they are not just the subject, but they are involved in the process. When it came time to do my exhibition for my master's, I was asked a question by someone like whether I would consider including a discussion on trans existence, basically. And it never even occurred to me because we're doing an exhibition on trans people, on trans history. That's just a given that trans people exist. And so that really became part of the foundation of this whole theory, my whole work, that if I'm talking about trans people, it should be for trans people. And in doing so, it should not even open the door to a conversation where, well, do trans people exist? Because then that's just failing that target audience. Additionally, I found this echoed in Chase Joint's film Framing Agnes, because that film was very much designed and written for trans people. And the result of that was such a rewarding, such a challenging and fascinating film that spoke to facets of trans life that you don't need to go into the weeds to discuss, oh, yes, this is this person. They've been out for this long. You can just start discussing these ideas around visibility and being out and be able to contrast things so fascinatingly. And that's really, I think, such an important thing. Being able to talk to these audiences directly without having to translate it because something is always going to be lost during the translation. And so if you're actually trying to talk to the community that's being discussed, it behooves you to speak to them and 
to really, really lean into it. I was just thinking about Framing Agnes too, and I guess for listeners, Framing Agnes is a film by Dr. Chase Joint, which recently premiered at Sundance. Dr. Joint is a professor up at the Gender Studies Department at the University of Victoria. And just to read the logline, after discovering case files from a 1950s gender clinic, a cast of trans actors turn a talk show inside out to confront the legacy of a young trans woman, Agnes, who's forced to choose between honesty and access. The film is in part a product of archival research done by Dr. Joint and Kristen Schilt, who found Agnes's file in Harold Garfinkel's private archives at UCLA in a rusted filing cabinet that they had to use a crowbar to open. I'll put a link in the description so folks can find out more and, and know what we're talking about. Yeah, I have to restrain myself because I feel like I could just go on for hours about framing Agnes because there was just so much lovely stuff in that film. But even in that stopping and starting uh, fashion, it still was enough to make me tear off a bit at the end to feel like I was actually seeing something that spoke to me in a way that I really hadn't felt before. Framing Agnes really felt like it was trying to say something more and say something to the trans community. And I really felt like that really came through in such strong ways through the film. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, and I guess this kind of segues well into our last question, again, going back to your blog post about how do we talk about trans history, transgender history? And yeah, I guess I'm wondering if you'd want to share some of your thoughts on how cisgender privilege, I mean, we've touched on this, I think maybe a little bit already, but how cisgender privilege shows up in history in the museum and, and how folks might challenge that or any other thoughts you might have on that? Yeah. Cisgender privilege pipes up all the time. One of the main ways that I see it happening is very similar to, I'm sure a lot of queer people will be familiar with the phrase gal pals. Uh, this idea that, no, they weren't lovers. They were just very good friends. We can't know for certain because they didn't say. That's basically what it comes down to. There's no evidence to say that they were. And this is really what runs through a lot of the cisgender privilege in collections. Well, we can't say for certain that he was trans, so we're going to use they, them pronouns or just ignore it. I think a prime example, the one that I keep using and I used in that blog post is Dr. James Berry. Dr. Barry was a British medical officer, served around the world. Famously, he was the first doctor to perform a, a cesarean section in which both parent and child survived. And upon his death, it was discovered that he was assigned female at birth. This is in the 19th century, before the idea of transgender as we know it today. And as a result of this discovery, he has been interpreted a lot as a woman because, oh, we don't know why he wore men's clothing, why he took on a male persona for his entire life. And this comes in two forms, this uncertainty. At the heart of it is it's denying him a male identity. It's saying we don't know that he 
did it because he was transgender. We don't know that it wasn't because women couldn't join the military. Women couldn't join, couldn't go to medical school. So there's uncertainty there. However, in denying him his male identity, in denying that he lived as a man for the vast majority of his life, even beyond retirement, it's saying that identity matters the most. It's saying that we cannot know for certain, therefore we cannot recognize him as he lived. And this comes in the form of two main ways, either using she, her pronouns for him and saying that he was a woman, outright misgendering him, or saying, well, we don't know, therefore we're not going to use either he, him, or she, her, we're going to use they, them pronouns. And that's just, to me, that is just as bad. It is refusing him the life that he lived all under this pretense of admitting uncertainty, which is a very important principle within museum writing. It's one of the rules for the BMA, for the BMA in their text writing document. And it really shows how privilege can distort because the assumption then is that, yes, he was living as a man because he couldn't do what he wanted as a woman. And it was all just a facade. It was all just a trick, which is, I hope I don't need to go into the long transphobic history of facades and transitioning to deceive. And I think that's just one way that we can really see this privilege coming through. It's not impossible to still recognize uncertainty in this histories. I think that author Claire Sears does it very well in Arresting Dress, all about cross-dressing in San Francisco in the 19th century, where she uh, brings together histories of uh, migrants and cross-dressers, what we would now say are trans people, disabled folks, women, and bring them all together under this umbrella of cross-dressing and saying they might not necessarily be trans, but they did live a trans experience. They lived a trans life. And just recognizing that that potential is there, I think is essential to breaking down the privilege that exists. Yeah, that's so true. And, and just to me, as you were talking, I thought about how using they, them pr uh, pronouns is just as bad and even, you know, more insidious too, because it's, it's almost a guise of inclusivity. It's a major guise. I've seen it be purported in proudful ways for Dr. James Barry, who, to be clear, James Barry is trans. He wished to be buried in his bedsheets without being examined. It's very clear that just what he lived through was a trans life. And so to say of one of the biggest examples of a trans person in history to say, no, 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 we can't trust that. Therefore, we're going to use they, them is just, it is disappointing at the greatest level. It also just brings up like, at, we're talking about cis privilege, but cis normativity encompassed within that. Like, why is that the default? It just is kind of baffling. There's a great article 
by Mary Weissmuthal in the Transgender Studies Reader, Volume 2, called Toward a Transgender Archaeology. And in it, she really goes after this idea, this cis-normativity, where assumptions will just be made of the past, looking at archaeology and just assuming that the family structure is the same as what we have today. And that barely ever going question. And yeah, like this sort of work, this sort of unraveling of privilege is necessary because those assumptions have been so baked into everything we do that once you start unraveling them, it reveals more and more and more. Do you have any final comments that you'd maybe like to share about visions or or hopes for the future of the museum, gallery, heritage sector? I'd definitely like to see more done by the glam sector. I think that for one thing, we're in a very precarious moment where trans existence is threatened. Texas, for example, has been threatening to investigate parents of trans kids simply for affirming their gender. And this has not been addressed nearly as often as it should be because this is bad. I cannot stress that enough that this is a bad, awful thing that's going on for the amount of attention that Florida's Don't Say Gay bill has gotten. It is shocking and disappointing that things like Texas and elsewhere are not getting seen. There were about 200 anti-trans bills introduced in the U.S. in the last year. And these things are not going to stay in the U.S. Museums have the opportunity to get ahead of the game and play a role in helping trans people actually be able to live their lives. So I'd like to see that. I don't have much hope that I will, unfortunately, but I've got some, I guess. Additionally, I'd like to see a trans in museum field really be taken on its own, somewhat separate, but also connected to queer. Because I feel like oftentimes trans just gets read under a queer lens and not really given the space to speak for itself. I would say that those are the two main things that I hope to see from the field, both more activism, more advocacy and reflections on where trans people exist in museum spaces. I think that's such an important point, just the power of the museum to help push back against some of these things that are happening, right? Thank you so much, Amelia, for taking the time today and for sharing all of your experience and your insights. We've been really grateful to have you on today. And we'll link Amelia's blog, portfolio, and digital exhibitions that you do have on your blog on www.notyouraveragesistory.com, as well as your Twitter at ntyr average sistery which will also be linked thank you very much for having me